This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. We're in a series that we we started a few weeks ago called You Asked, We Answered. And a few months ago, we gave you these surveys and just said, hey, give us topics that you would love to hear a message on. And part of that is because when Jesus taught, a lot of times he did so in response to questions. It wasn't just like he prepared a message. Somebody asked him a question and then he taught. And so we've done that over this series. And for the first few weeks, we took topics that you gave us. And today we're going to hit another topic, and that's family. You gave us a topic of family. I reserve that for Father's Day. We have one more week left in this series. That'll be next week. So I'm really going to kind of just go after this today and build a really solid theological foundation for us to address the end of it, okay? And so if, if you will just kind of let me start at the very beginning, all right? God designed two institutions or systems on this earth to give life, there are two institute we would call them institutions, we may think about them as systems, that are designed by God on earth to give life. And one of those, the first of those, was the family. Now, you may not be familiar with this story if you didn't grow up in church, so let me just kind of go back there because there are some of us that didn't. That we as believers believe that God existed before any of the things that we see existed. He's existed eternally in three distinct personalities, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and community with himself. He did not need us. He was perfect without us. But then he endeavored in creation. I love that even the greatest physicists of our time, when they describe the creation of the world, they mirror what we see in the Bible. That Stephen Hawking, who is considered one of the most brilliant astrophysicists to ever live, claims that all of the world started in a mass of atoms that may have been the size of a baseball. And see, we believe that it started before that. Because something had to make the baseball. And God made the baseball. And then he began to create the world worlds that we know and the universe that we know and then the earth as we know it and species on the earth and then he created humanity and there was something different because embedded into humanity was the image of himself and so it if you read the creation story it appears that God is caught off guard but I don't think it's that way because I think he was showing us something about ourselves because he creates man and in Genesis 2 he says well it's not good because he's lonely. And I don't think what he's saying is my job wasn't good. What he was saying is that in future generations, when you look back on this moment, I want you to know it's not good for you to be alone. Because just like a God who existed eternally in three persons, God made us to live in community. And so he creates a woman, puts them together, and they become the first family. He gives them a place to live. He gives them jobs. He gives them authority, and he gives them one rule. How many of y'all would just like to have one rule? 
Wouldn't that be a good deal? I'd take that deal, right? One rule. One rule, and they break it. One rule, and they break it. You see, sin entered the world through a family. And something, when it happened, went terribly wrong. And we know it. We know it went terribly wrong. There's something in your heart, something even in your experience that causes you to know that something went wrong, that this institution, the family, that God designed to bring life into this world, that something is wrong. Some of you knew it when you were kids and your parents sat you down and they told you, Mommy and Daddy are not going to live together anymore. In fact, what's going to happen is that when mom and dad, in just a few weeks, they're going to separate. And when they separate, we're not going to live together as a family anymore. Some of you, the first time you found out that there was something wrong was when your parents sat you down as little kids and said, we're going to get a divorce. Some of you, you found it out later in life when you thought you had married the perfect guy. And it was years later, sometimes even just months later, when he came in and he sat you down. And he said, this isn't working. I don't love you anymore. And I don't want to be married to you anymore. Some of you found that out after getting married where you've wanted to be a parent. And for years and years and years, you've been trying to get pregnant. And month after month after month, you're not. And you know that there's something that's wrong. There's some of us that we grew up in families where we knew that our parents were supposed to be there. They were supposed to be there not just to to have fun with, but to guide us and to tell us what to do in life and to correct us and to instruct us. But our parents weren't there. Some of us, our parents were were gone and they were working and because they were working so hard to provide, maybe they were a single parent. They weren't there with us. Some of us, our parents weren't there because they were out having fun. Some of us grew up in families where we knew, we we just knew instinctively that what we should get in a family is love. We should be loved and loved well. But we weren't loved And instead of love, we were given judgment. We were given a standard that we could never live up to. And we were constantly being berated and compared and challenged and never accepted. And some of us, we grew up in families where instead of being given love, we were given an addiction. Because we saw in our families and in our parents People who, when times got tough, instead of going to Jesus or getting on their knees, they went to a substance to escape it. See, we all know that something is wrong. So why is every family broken? Why is every family broken? The first thing in your notes today is the answer to that. Every family is broken because every family is filled with sinners. 
every family is filled with sinners. Your mom and your dad were sinners. Your brothers and your sisters were sinners. Your grandmas, grandpas, they were sinners. Aunts and uncles, they were sinners. Cousins, they're sinners too. And if you got kids, you dang sure know they're sinners. <laughs> All right? Every family is filled with sinners. And that's the problem because you know what sinners do? They sin. They do something that's wrong. And eventually what's going to happen in an intimate relationship with a sinner is they're going to wrong you. They're going to wrong you. And we live with this nagging reality. This nagging reality that it is not supposed to be this way because we all know it should be different. It's the next thing in your notes. We all know it should be different. I mean, there's something that's hidden in our hearts. The law of God, the natural law of God that lets us know that this is wrong. That when, when our parents sat us down and said, Mommy and Daddy aren't going to live together anymore. We don't love each other anymore. We're going to move out and we're going to have two different families now. There's something that was in our hearts that said, this is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And there's something that was hidden in our hearts when, when our spouse sat us down and said, I don't love you anymore, and I'm not committed to you anymore, and I don't want to do life with you anymore. There was something that was hidden in our heart that said, this is wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And there is something that's there when we experience the most difficult things, the greatest wrongs that maybe we've ever experienced in our families. Something that was there that just said, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And because of that, God created the second institution or system, which is the church. A second family to carry a message of hope and reconciliation. And just like your other family, your church family is filled with sinners. Just like your other family, your church family, at times, because it is filled with sinners, has the potential to wound you and hurt you. But the difference is, is that the church carries a message of hope and reconciliation that will reconcile the world, not just to itself, but to God himself. And so what I want to do today, because so many of us come from families where it's went wrong, it's went wrong. There's been some things that we're just, we know in our hearts, it's just not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to have gone that way. I want to take you to a favorite story of mine. It comes out of Luke 15. See, my wife and I, we were the couple that wanted to become parents for a long time. We were a year into trying and no baby and two years into trying and no baby and three years into trying and no baby and four years and five years and it was month after month of watching my wife cry and hurt and long. And then there came that day where there were two lines on the pregnancy test instead of one. 
And during that season, this story out of Luke 15, in my heart, for me, shaped into something vastly different than it had ever been before. Because Jesus tells the story about a dad and his kids. He has two sons, and the younger son, at the very opening of the story, comes to the dad and says, Dad, I, I want my inheritance. Now, today, that's not that big of a deal. Uh, many uh, wealthy families that I've known, uh, actually, later in life, they've divided their inheritance among their kids, w- retaining enough money kind of to live off of because they want to see their kids live in the fruitfulness that they had worked for. This is not an era where that was normal. As a matter of fact, it was a big insult for the son to say to his dad that he wanted his inheritance. Essentially what he was saying was the relationship that I have with you is no longer important. All that matters to me now is the financial capacity that I have to gain from your death. So if we could just go ahead and get this relationship over with, I'll go ahead and take the money. And it was really no small task because in those days, holdings didn't happen the way that they do in ours. It wasn't liquid assets, money sitting in the bank. Their wealth was contained in land and livestock. And so the father would have had to sell off land and livestock to create the money to give. And you know what he did? He did it. He literally responded to the request of his son. And he gave him his inheritance. And the Bible tells us that he left, went to a faraway distant land, and he squandered all of his money in wild living. He boozed it up. He drugged it up. He partied it up. He woman, womaned it up. I don't know what, <laughs> what the right term to put with that is. He lived wildly. When he had the means to go, and in those days to have been a very powerful person, to set himself up for the future, he had no thoughts for the future because eventually the money ran out. And at the same time that the money ran out, the land that he was living in went into a famine. So now, not only did he not have any resources, but the resources available where they lived became diminished. And he became hungry and homeless. And so he sought out a job, and he found a job working with a farmer. Now notice, Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience in this moment, and the only job he could get was feeding pigs. Pigs in that audience to a Jew would have been untouchable. This is the worst job that he could have had. And he was so hungry that what he wanted to eat was what he was feeding the pigs. So look what happened. Look what happened in verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So please take me on as a hired servant. He came to his senses. He snapped out of it. Whatever it was that he had bought into, whatever lie it was, he snapped out of it and realized what it was. And if he would just go home 
that if his father might forgive him, that he could have a much better life than he had in that moment. So understand this. He's broke. It, this, is, this is the, I mean, around Jesus' time. There is no car. There is no train. There is no plane. He's going to have to travel without money across the country, and he does. He begins to try. You can imagine hitchhiking, catching a ride, trying to find this, walking and walking and walking. And finally, in verse 20, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. He embraced him and he kissed him. You see, there was a speech that he had prepared. I don't know if you caught that. When he came to his senses, he said, I will tell my father, I've sinned against heaven and sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be a hired servant in your house. And when he gets home, when the father runs out to him, he drops the same speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father ignores him. <laughs> and he looks to his servants and he says, go get the robe. Go, go get the ring to put on his finger. For the son of mine that was lost is now found. The son that was dead is now alive again. He immediately receives him as a son. But I don't know if you remember this. There was another son. As a matter of fact, the other son was the older son. So when the estate was divided, it would have been divided into another portion besides those two. It would have been divided into three. The older son would have gotten two. All right? He was had a lot more to gain and lose in the property that was there. And so when he is out working, you can imagine large fields. He's not around when this goes on. The father in this moment says, this is a moment where we must celebrate. We must celebrate. My son was gone. He's home. We're going to have a party tonight. This is a good day for us. And so late in the evening, the older son comes home and sees the party going on, and he calls his dad out. Dad, what's going on? Well, your brother came home. He came home, and we're excited, so we're having a party to celebrate that your brother. And he has this conversation. All these years, I've slaved for you. And never once refused to do a single thing that you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. For a feast with my friends. You see, the young, the older son is offended at how the father has received his brother. And in that offense, he's refusing to go inside. He refuses to engage the party. He refuses to have the relationship that his father wants to have with him. And all this time, he says, this is what's been happening, Dad. I've been working like a slave. But the father says, no, you don't get it. Everything I have. It's been yours. You've been working to try to earn something that you have already been given. So what I want to do today, 
is I want to step back from this story and I want to see three guiding principles that if we're going to take our families, that many of them have drifted away from being life-giving and to reclaim a life-giving family, three things that we have got to start doing well. The first thing that we need to do well is that we must be willing to extend forgiveness. We must be willing to extend forgiveness. If we're going to create a life-giving family culture, we must be willing to extend forgiveness. Look at this. Ephesians 4.32 kind of sets the platform for what I want you to see about forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We can forgive as believers, not because it's necessarily the right thing, although it is the right thing. We can forgive because Christ has forgiven us. So because we have received kindness and tender love and forgiveness, because we have received that from Jesus, we can now give that to other people. So many of us struggle with forgiveness. The question I think that we might want to ask when it comes to families is, why, why do we actually need to forgive in family so much? Well, here's why. We're sinners, and we often wrong the people that we love the most. If you're here and you're a dad, I, I want you to drop the, the manly, macho, arrogant facade for a moment and just let me speak to you. In the course of your relationship with your spouse and your kids, you will wound them deeper than likely most people in the world will ever wound them. You will wrong them, and it will come not necessarily out of your intentions, but it will happen because you are a sinner. And even the most redeemed and rescued of us, in the context of that level of intimacy, there's always going to be the presence of wrong. And if you don't recognize that in you and in the way that you lead your family and in the way that you have dealt with your kids and you're not the kind of dad that asks for forgiveness frequently, you're not going to see that in your kids and in your spouse at all because you are the leader of your family. And if you don't lead the way in promoting forgiveness and saying, I was wrong, I need you to forgive me, it won't become a part of the family culture that you have. You see, we must be willing to forgive others. We must be willing to ask for forgiveness. But we also need to be willing, pay attention to this, we must be willing to forgive ourselves. Do you remember that moment in the story? When the younger brother wakes up and comes to his senses, do you know what happened in that moment? He finally realized his situation and forgave himself and said, I'm not going to continue to perpetuate this problem. I'm going to step out of the problem. Many of you are not willing to forgive yourselves, and because you're not, the problems that you have continue to carry on over and over and over because forgiveness is always the open door to healing. 
But not only do we need to extend forgiveness, the second thing that we see in this story is that we must be willing to give grace. We must be willing to give grace. Can I point out something that I'd never noticed about this story until I was was studying for this message? Do you notice that the father never forgives the son? He He never says, I forgive you. He actually even asks for forgiveness. Hey, Father, forgive me for I've sinned against heaven and sinned against you. He, he goes through his speech, but he never says that. You know what? Uh, you're forgiven. No, now, no, it, he is prepared. There's something hidden in that story that I want you to see. That it says while he was still a long way off. The father noticed him and he ran out to him and he greeted him and he hugged him and he loved him and he received him as a son. That moment when he finally came to his senses, when he was still in the distant land, longing to eat the food that the pigs were eating, his father was still looking down the road, wanting him to come home. Because he had already given him grace for the wrong that had happened. See, I think sometimes we get confused about what grace and forgiveness are. And I want to help clarify that because there are some of you today that you need to start living with a little bit more grace than you've ever lived with before. Because you keep getting your feelings hurt and your feelings hurt and your feelings hurt. And it's because you live with a really low level of grace. See, here's the thing. Forgiveness is needed when a wrong becomes a wound. Forgiveness is needed when a wrong becomes a wound. And forgiveness is something that has to be spoken and shared. And we know that when forgiveness is spoken and shared, it opens our hearts to healing. And there are wrongs that are so devastating and gross in their negligence that they do and should become woundedness, okay? There's just a natural part. There's some of it that is so, and some of you have been through some abuse and things that I don't want to try to dismiss that, okay? But forgiveness disarms it and it takes that wrong and opens the door to healing. But grace is something totally different because grace prevents a wrong from becoming a wound. Grace prevents a wrong from becoming a wound. You see, the father never had to say, I forgive you because he had already let it go. Grace had already been extended. The relationship was just waiting to be restored when the son finally made that move to come home. And some of you, every time there's a wrong, you let it progress to become a wound. When you can cut it off with grace and say, no, I'm going to give grace. It was wrong, but I'm going to give grace and I'm going to let it go. See, here's the thing. When we give forgiveness, people know because we have to talk about it. But when we give grace, nobody knows. And why do we give grace? The same reason that we give forgiveness. Because how many of y'all know that right now, in this moment, you have not been given what you deserve? 
You haven't been given what you deserve. You as a sinner deserve death, but you have been given life. And there is so much more connected to the life that you have that's been given to you that you right now can understand that that is tangible, a representation of grace. And so we need to extend forgiveness. We need to be willing to give grace. And the last thing is we must be refusing, we must refuse to be entitled. We must refuse to be entitled. That word entitled means to feel special or to think that you deserve something. The, the word actually finds its origin in, in a feudal system where kings and lords would pass down titles to other people and they would entitle them, which would mean that you now had a claim over something. If you became the lord of Canterbury, it meant that you had a claim over Canterbury. So here's the problem. There's many of us right now that we are in life claiming things that we do not have authority over. Maybe you're here and you're the person that's saying, I deserve his attention. I deserve it. I deserve his attention. We're married. He's my husband. I deserve his attention. Instead of saying, I desire his attention. There's a big difference between those two words. I'm entitled to his attention. Maybe you're here today and you're the guy that says, she should be more concerned about cleaning her home. She should be. I'm, I'm, I, I deserve a wife that does that. I'm entitled to that. Maybe you're here and you're in a relationship and you think this, that you make this claim about how you function they shouldn't expect this much from me. I mean, the truth, maybe you're saying to yourself, There's they, why, why are they upset? Why should they even expect anything from me? Maybe you're here and your husband and you just feel like, well, she should make herself more available. If you're a parent, maybe you're here and it's, our kids should be more motivated or behave better. So I want to ask you this question right now. What are you claiming right now that you don't have authority to claim? What are you claiming? What are you trying to take possession of that you do not have authority to take possession of it? Because we see that in the older brother. Did you notice what happened in the conversation with his dad? He said, Dad, I've been a slave for you. I've been a slave. I've worked like a slave. I've worked like an indentured servant for you. And you, you've never given me, you haven't given me even a goat. And the father says to him, no, you've, that's all wrong. Now, because I gave him his inheritance, everything I have is yours. What you're trying to do is you're trying to earn something that can only be given. Let me say that again. Entitlement 
puts you in a place where you try to claim something that can only be given. Entitlement puts you in a position in your heart where you try to claim something that can only be given. And it doesn't just happen in families. It also happens in the church because look at how that whole chapter kicks off in Luke 15, verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told this story. He told this story to a group of pastors and religious leaders who were very inward focused, who said, we've all got it. We're on the in crew. We're we're a part of the inside of this club. It should now all be about us. We're entitled to this. We're entitled to be comfortable. We're entitled to be taken care of. We're entitled to have things go our way. We're enti- and this attitude crept in, and Jesus tells his story. And at the very end of that story, there's a party going on. The father's in with the lost son, and the only person that's not in the party is the older son who felt like he'd been cheated. And you know what's sad? He'd done it all right. But he'd done it all for the wrong reason. And there's some of you today, you just feel like I've done it all right and I deserve. And what you're saying is, God, you owe me something. And you owe me something that really, in all honesty, can only be given. Can I tell you something that I noticed about this? Is that the easiest way to lose your way is to start worrying about yourself first. The easiest way to lose your own way is to start worrying about yourself first. That's where those religious leaders had gotten. That's where the older son was. And Jesus came on the scene and said, I'm just going to help you out. The only way, if you want life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. I am the way. And there are some of you that if you're honest in your own heart, you have deviated from saying, God, it is all about you. I'm following you. And it has all just subtly shifted to now it's all about me and how I feel and what makes me happy and what makes me satisfied. It is not any longer about him. And I believe that right now, in this moment, there's some families in this room that God is going to rescue as he takes what has been a life-stealing family culture and creates a life-giving family culture where we are willing to forgive, where we work hard to give grace, and we refuse to be entitled. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. 
For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.